Hi, I'm back. Welcome to episode 82 of True Crime Finland. Mikkelin Panttivanki drama, the Mikkeli hostage drama. As the title already suggests, this is a true crime podcast and it details cases that can be of a disturbing and violent nature. Because of this, I encourage you to use your discretion and stop listening or skip ahead if you need to. If you're ready, let's get started. On Friday, the 8th of August in 1986, at around 1.40 in the afternoon, a man entered a Gonzales Osakepanki bank office in Yakomaki, located in northeastern Helsinki. He was wearing a black nylon sock covering his face and black leather gloves. With him, he had a sawn-off shotgun and a sports bag full of explosives, more specifically dynamite. There was a trigger attached to the dynamite, and the man kept fiddling with it as he ordered the customers as well as the staff to the back of the office. The man demanded that the police be called, and then ordered the office director to lock the doors and pull the curtains in front of the windows. He proceeded to take 12 hostages. As requested, the police were called, and a command center was set up at the Basila police station in Helsinki. Police officers as well as the special tactical unit Karhuruhma or the Bear Squad were on the scene in minutes. There were in total 11 patrol units and the scene was soon completely blocked off from outsiders. The office director passed on the kidnappers' demands to the police at around 20 past 2. The officers quickly surrounded the building on all sides and started negotiating with the perpetrator, who was threatening that he would act immediately without hesitation and blow up the dynamite if the police decided to raid the bank or let in gas through the airways. He then requested two blankets, three sets of handcuffs, a fast getaway car, as well as 2.5 million marks, about 800,000 euros today. He threatened that he would not be leaving the bank before these requirements were met. Given the explosives the man was carrying, the police found the best way forward with the situation was to fulfill his demands to an extent. They delivered to the scene a Mercedes and a briefcase containing a million marks that they had fetched from the bank's headquarters. Even though the perpetrator had requested 2.5 million marks, they only put in a million, along with a note that read, quote, Here's a million marks. Wait, we are getting more. Before giving the car up, the police decided to empty some gas from it, but doctored it so that it looked like the tank was full. Meanwhile, inside the bank, the perpetrator had requested that he be given all the notes that were 50 marks and bigger. 
He also wanted currency from the U.S. and Germany. He received about 66,000 marks in Finnish and foreign currency from the bank, on top of the million marks the police had fetched for him. The perpetrator still had some demands. He requested that the people surrounding the bank stand back and that the blankets, the handcuffs, and all of the money be brought to him inside. He stated the money would be counted before the car could be brought in to make sure it was the right amount. The items and the money were now delivered to the front of the building with the note stating that the rest of the money was still being collected. The perpetrator started getting impatient, threatening that if he did not get all of his money soon, he would start the timer. Finally. The items as well as the money were delivered inside the bank as requested. The car was also brought to the perpetrator, but he was not satisfied with it, instead demanding the bank director's car. Towards the evening, the director's car, a white Volkswagen Bassat, was brought to the front of the building. The perpetrator accepted this car and took with him as hostages two female bank tellers, 18-year-old Anita Siikonen and 25-year-old Anne Hämäläinen, as well as one male customer, 25-year-old Jukka Häkkinen, before exiting the bank. The officers had previously been given permission to eliminate the suspect. Snipers were ready and on alert for whenever the perpetrator would come into view. However, he exited walking in between the hostages with a blanket covering all of them, making it impossible to get a shot at him without risking hitting the hostages. The man entered the car with the three hostages, forcing Hackinen on the driver's seat while he sat on the back with Siegonen. The other bank teller, Hamelainen, was seated in the front next to Häkkinen. It was 7.55 in the evening when Häkkinen started driving, following the orders of the perpetrator. They drove around southern Finland, changing direction several times, while a 400-meter-long line of officers in civil and police cars as well as motorcycles followed them with a helicopter flying overhead. The officers had been given new instructions and ordered not to stop the car, instead only to follow it for now. The perpetrator was sitting inside, holding both the shotgun as well as the trigger for the explosives, wearing a blanket to cover his face while chit-chatting with the hostages. After a good while of driving all over, the getaway car started running out of gas. They had already stopped at a gas station, but the perpetrator felt it was best not to fill the tank there because there were so many people and police cars around. They drove to a different gas station between Lahti and Heinola, about an hour away from Helsinki. There, 
they started refueling. However, the police were quick on their tail and shut down the pump. They only got about eight liters of gasoline in the tank. At this point, it was ten in the evening when one of the captives, Hamalainen, who was seated in the front, slipped the paper to the officers. The paper had apparently been dictated by the perpetrator, and it read, "The situation needs to change. Stop the stakeout entirely so that the situation calms down. We need a radio phone and gas." The police did not fulfill this request, and the chase continued. At eleven in the evening, the chase had already lasted for three hours. It looked like the car might be heading to Mikkeli, a city about two hundred and thirty kilometers away from Helsinki. The officers following the getaway car contacted the Mikkeli police as a precaution. And ordered local gas stations to be shut down in advance. A note was also left on the side of the road for the perpetrator to see. It said, quote, "Stop to negotiate." It also had a phone number on it where the perpetrator could call. However, he did not notice the paper or ignored it. Instead, he continued on his way towards Mikkeli. Finally, at one o'clock at night, the car arrived in Mikkeli, and the perpetrator ordered the driver Hakkinen to stop at a taxi stand. The police immediately pulled over and got out of their patrol cars, drawing their weapons. When this happened, the getaway car started moving again to a different place. The officers were now continually blasting orders with a megaphone for the perpetrator to stop for negotiations, while two of the hostages, Tsikanen and Hamelainen, were attempting to wave the officers off so that they would stop following the car. The car finally stopped on the corner of the Mikkeli Provincial Government Building, on the side of the marketplace. The police immediately surrounded it. Curious onlookers quickly gathered on the scene. The police isolated the marketplace entirely and blocked the scene with patrol cars in the case of an explosion. Two ambulances were also called to the scene by the police as a precaution. The perpetrator put a blanket over himself, attempting to hide from officers. The police had received directions from the police command to start negotiating further with the perpetrator. The goal was to get him an NMT phone or a megaphone to facilitate this, but the command also stated the perpetrator should only be furnished these items. If he made some sort of a concession as well, the first and primary goal was to release the hostages, get the perpetrator to give up the explosives, and have him surrender. If this did not work, the police command instructed that the very last resort was to let the perpetrator go. 
The officers were still speaking into the megaphone, asking the perpetrator to negotiate, but he did not react to these requests. He never spoke up himself, but instead, Sikonen and especially Hamalainen shouted his messages out of the window. Hakkinen, too, attempted to have some sort of dialogue with the officers, but it was hard to hear him because he had just been sick with a sore throat, and his voice was raspy. The situation had now come to a standstill. According to protocol at the time, the special task force Skarhurma and their field chief was in charge as long as the situation was evolving. Whenever it came to a halt, the authority should have been transferred to the local police. However, the assistant police director of the Mikkeli region did not get involved, and this meant Garhurima's field chief stayed in charge. At 1.20 at night, the chief decided to move some people inside the provincial government building. Its windows were only a few meters away from the perpetrator's car. There were also officers on rooftops to monitor the situation from a different angle. At 1.30, the police were finally able to start negotiating with the perpetrator when he showed some faint signs of cooperation. Leading the negotiations was left to a police officer who had with them the megaphone on the back seat of a patrol car. Still trying to get the hostages out of the situation in one piece, the police offered the perpetrator a deal. Release the hostages and in return, get a new car and an NMT phone. The perpetrator had other plans. He demanded that the police offer him more gas and let him leave without incident. Instead of releasing the hostages then and there, his plan was to free them some ways away and continue on his own. He was laying on the back seat a bag of dynamite at his feet and the trigger in his hands, ready to go at any second. As for the hostages, they were afraid and uncomfortable to leave the car. They told the officers that if they were given more cash, they would be prepared to keep driving with the perpetrator and follow his plan. The police leadership had previously given out an order to eliminate the perpetrator if possible. At 1.42, this order was now withdrawn. The goal was to instead continue peaceful negotiations to free the hostages. The orders also stated that firearms were not to be used during negotiations. The discussion moved forward with the two female hostages as mediators between the kidnapper and the police. The perpetrator now finally asked for a megaphone for himself, 
The police accepted this request and offered one to him. However, he did not let anyone fetch the megaphone and refused to let the police approach the vehicle. At a bit over two at night, the situation started slowing down again. One of the hostages, Hamalainen, asked the perpetrator to free her and the other hostages, but he refused, saying that they would be, quote, either going forward or upwards. The perpetrator was still unwilling to negotiate directly with the police for the fear of getting identified. He did not budge on his position that he would not trade a car for the hostages. Despite this, the officers tried their best to keep the conversation going. This went on for another hour. The situation suddenly changed at 3.46 in the morning. For the very first time, the perpetrator reached out to the police himself. He started yelling threats, shouting that he was going to blow up the dynamite in five minutes. His sudden outburst of rage was a shock to everyone, both the police and the hostages. The negotiations quickly turned into a shouting match. At the same time, the perpetrator was yelling in a fit of rage. The car suddenly started moving. He forced Hakkinen to start the engine, making him drive very close to the police car surrounding them. The police leadership now gave out a command according to which the perpetrator should be allowed to leave the scene. At this point, Anna Hamalainen saw the kidnapper fiddling with the trigger again. Three minutes later, at 3.49, the police ordered the captives to leave the car. The first to exit the car at 3.50 was Anna Hamalainen, who was sitting on the front seat. She ran towards the provincial government building. There, a police sergeant took her under his wing and to safety. The kidnapper now loosened his hold on Anita Siganen, who had been sitting on the back seat. She saw an opportunity and went for it, bolting out of the car and running away. The driver, Hakkinen, did not move. As the police noticed Hakkinen was not leaving the car, the field chief of the tactical unit gave out a final order to attack. An officer ran from around the corner right in front of the car, shooting on the windshield. He aimed at the perpetrator laying on the back seat, but he soon lost visibility entirely. Two officers that had been stationed in the provincial government building took their shots right after this.
One was attempting to hit the perpetrator between the neck and the shoulders. However, as he was laying down on the back seats and the visibility was very bad, the officers were unsure if they had hit him or not. Four seconds after the two women had exited the car, there was an explosion. It blew up the car and knocked over the people close to it. Shreds of money were flying around in the air. The perpetrator as well as the male captive, Jukka Häkkinen, died immediately. Anne Hamelainen had made it around the corner and escaped unharmed. Anita Siikanen had been thrown on the ground from the force of the explosion. She suffered injuries in her back and was hit by small, sharp fragments all over her body. Several officers were also injured, two of them very critically. One officer flew over the car and into the pavement, damaging his leg severely. The kidnapper was later finally identified as 36-year-old Jorma Takola, a seamer and an entrepreneur. He had two daughters to whom he had written a letter dated with the date of the bank robbery. We can only guess what his motives were, but according to the letter, he was hoping for a new start not only financially but emotionally with his daughters. He felt he had failed in life and wrote that he had burned the bridges behind him. He also said he knew what he was going to do was not right and hoped it would not bring his daughters any trouble, though he estimated this was probably a useless wish. Even though Takala was now dead, and could not be charged with a crime. The National Bureau of Investigation, or the NBI, carried out an extensive investigation into the events of that night. It resulted in more than 2,000 pages of material. The offenses listed in the documents were taking hostages, blackmail, illegal possession of a firearm, and other equipment, causing an explosion, one count of murder, three counts of attempted murder, as well as several counts of aggravated assault. It was initially unclear whether Takala or the police's bullets caused the explosion. The NBI estimated that Takala most likely started the explosion himself. The bullets fired by the officers did not directly cause Takala's or the male hostage Hakkinen's death, nor did they start the explosion, the NBI concluded. After completing their inquiry, the NBI turned over the material to the then Chancellor of Justice, Jorma As Aldo. Aldo agreed with the NBI's conclusion expressing in his final decision 
that Takala himself had apparently set off the explosives at around 3.15 in the morning. According to the inquiry and the final decision, it was not possible to blow up explosives by shooting at them with a shotgun unless the bullet hit the detonator cap's explosive components. Aldo stated it was very unlikely that the police's bullets had detonated the dynamite. He added that he did not think it was necessary to press charges against any officers who had been at the scene at the time. However, he did demand that the Ministry of the Interior detangle the complicated leadership situation of the police and stated that the regulations related to the police's use of firearms should be revised. Even if the Chancellor of Justice did not find it necessary to summon any of the police officers, the case still went to court in 1987 in the Mikkeli Town Court. The family of Yuka Hakkinen, who died in the explosion, was not satisfied with the outcome of the investigation. The family was requesting a punishment for five police officers for manslaughter and breach of office. The family was also seeking compensation for pain and emotional suffering in the amount of 30,000 marks about 8,000 euros today. In addition, they requested compensation for the funeral costs in the amount of 10,000 marks. The main argument was that the officers had not complied with the police command's orders, which prohibited shooting. The police had knowingly provoked the perpetrator and deadlocked the situation by keeping the kidnapper trapped in the siege line, even when the situation worsened significantly. According to the family, the final attack on the perpetrator had happened so fast that Hakkinen did not have any chance to escape or leave the car before it exploded about 1.7 seconds after the first shot. The Chancellor of Justice had found that the officers did not cause Hakkinen's death because the police did not hit him, but the family felt otherwise. They argued that the police's bullets had caused the explosion, and thus, ultimately, Hakkinen's death. On the 1st of June in 1990, the Mikkeli Town Court found the defendants not guilty freeing them of all charges. According to the court, the officers had not caused the death of Yukka Hakkinen, nor were they guilty of any other crimes they had been accused of. According to the court, the purpose of the attack was to hit the perpetrator and prevent an explosion. As for the use of firearms, according to established practice, the attack had to be prevented by using the most lenient means. The perpetrator's attack had to be prevented by using the most lenient means. 
Using a firearm was extreme use of force and should only be utilized in a very serious and dangerous situation where other means did not suffice to rescue the persons under attack, the court stated. The court found the fact that the situation had escalated as quickly and as surprisingly as it did key in this case. The court stated that according to the officer's testimony, the order to attack was given to save Hackinen, who had not moved or exited the car. The police had reason to assume that the perpetrator was going to blow up the car and as a consequence kill himself and Jukka Hackinen. Thus, in order to rescue Hackinen, the police had no other way left than to try to kill the perpetrator and prevent the explosion in this manner. The case went on to the Court of Appeals, which confirmed the ruling of the District Court. The original decision thus remained. The case was then appealed further to the Supreme Court of Finland. The court accepted the petition to appeal, and six years after the hostage drama, on the 3rd of May in 1993, the Supreme Court of Finland reversed the lower court's ruling partly, finding the field chief of the Special Tactical Unit Karhurma guilty of manslaughter and misconduct. He was ordered to pay 6,000 marks in fines, about 1,400 euros today. According to the Supreme Court, what led to this ruling was the fact that the field chief had not lifted the blockade and let the perpetrator go when the situation became increasingly intense. The perpetrator had become very agitated threatening that he would blow up the car if the officers did not let him go. Based on his specialized training, the field chief was aware that when a perpetrator got panicked, the best way forward was to loosen the police's grip on the situation and give the perpetrator some leeway. The field chief knew that the perpetrator was in the possession of very strong explosives, and he also had reason to believe that the perpetrator might go through with his threats. According to the court, he had to have understood that if they did not let the perpetrator go, the lives of the hostages would be in serious danger. Even so, the chief held on to the siege line. The chief had thus gone against the action orders of the police command, and there were no acceptable grounds for how he proceeded in the situation, the court stated. The aftermath of this case has since led to several developments in the Finnish police force. For one, the complicated police leadership situation in 1980s Finland made it very unclear who was actually in charge. The police were not prepared for a moving situation 
where the leadership should be transferred from one district to another, while police officers from several different areas were involved. The hostage drama marked a turning point for the Finnish police and its leadership. A committee was later set up to develop police leadership, and action plans were put in place in each area for special, demanding cases. Today, the police leadership system is the same everywhere in Finland, from the south to the very north, and there are protocols in place for especially demanding and difficult cases. Another development also stems partly from this case. Back in the 80s, when the hostage drama took place, the Finnish police used their firearms up to several hundreds of times per year, much more than they do today. The case, and especially the subsequent Supreme Court ruling, has been viewed as one of the factors reducing the police's use of firearms. Nowadays, the Finnish police shoot less than 10 shots per year on average, making Finland an exception, even in the Nordic countries. The use of firearms is seen as the very final resort. Thank you so much for listening to the 82nd episode of True Crime Finland. Crime Stories from the Cold North. If you would like to support the show, you can do that on Patreon, or you can donate as little as $2 a month, and in return, get exclusive access to ad-free and early episodes and other nice rewards. Visit the page at patreon.com slash truecrimefinland. Art is by Mark Bernier. And Music is Night by VVS Music. You can contact me via email at truecrimefinlandpod at gmail.com. There is a Facebook group called True Crime Finland Podcast, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at tc underscore Finland. You can find all my episodes on my website at truecrimefinland.squarespace.com or wherever you get your podcasts.